Lord, we live in a veil of darkness. There are many here who lack faith in you, and for them, Lord, they just live in darkness. Uh, and they have no means to grapple with the darkness they see around them, the darkness of sin and evil and suffering. And th- Lord, those of us who have faith, who have seen the light, we confess that even we see through a glass darkly. We do not have full comprehension of all that you are doing in this world, of our own suffering. Um, but Lord, we know that your word has the answers. Your truth has the answers. So Lord, we, we pray along with the psalmist, Open our eyes so that we might behold wondrous things from your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can tell a lot about an artist from his art. From the paintings of Leonardo da Vinci, you can see that he had a mathematical mind, an eye for symmetry, and a detailed knowledge of anatomy. My wife and I recently read a book together about the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. And one of the interesting aspects of the book was how the personalities, egos, and worldviews of the architects and landscapers who prepared the fairgrounds revealed themselves in the things that they created. Then there's that modern poet and philosopher, Taylor Swift. Her many songs about relationships and breakups no doubt reflect her extensive experience with both. You can tell a lot about an artist from his art You can tell a lot about a creator from his creation. Today we will study the greatest works of art and what they say about the greatest artist. We will learn about our creator from the creation. If this is your first time with us today or you, like me, need occasional reminders, let me bring you up to speed where we are today. We are in a series through Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Genesis is full of beginnings, and origins, and contains foundational truths for the rest of the Pentateuch, the Old Testament, the Bible as a whole, and the Christian faith. It is ultimately all about God, and one of the themes we see throughout the book is that is God's undeserved kindness to the undeserving. That's why we are calling this sermon series Foundations of Grace. In today's passage, the first two chapters of Genesis, we will see God's grace and many other attributes on display in his creation, both in his world and in his image. There's a lot of information and many theological truths packed in these two chapters. We will be as thorough as possible, hit the highlights, and draw some broad applications. A whole series of sermons could be preached from these two chapters alone, so we will just touch on the most important takeaways. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. It should be in the first page of text in your Bible. In these first two chapters, we have two creation accounts. Some have seen these as contradictory accounts, but the right way to think about them is that they are the same account from two different perspectives. As we work through this passage, we will borrow some terms from the movie industry. In movies, you use different camera angles and techniques for different scenes. We call them camera shots. There's a pan shot or panoramic shot where the cinematographer helps the audience take in a wide-angle view from a great distance or he pans across the horizon or a room full of characters. Then there's the close-up. That's when the camera zooms in for a much more intimate look. And of course, every movie 
has a climax, a point where the dramatic tension of the movie reaches a climactic peak and then begins to resolve itself. For example, in the classic Star Wars film, Empire Strikes Back, the tension mounts as Luke prepares to confront Darth Vader, and at the end of their intense lightsaber duel, at the climactic moment of the movie, Vader tells Luke, I am your father. The first creation account is like a pan shot. It's distant and provides a good overview. The second account is like a close-up. It is much more detailed and intimate. And then we'll look at the climax of both accounts, and then we'll pull some applications out. First, the pan shot. The pan shot. Our pan shot opens with the widest possible camera angle, the farthest zoom out. God creating the universe in the beginning. Verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As we learned in our previous sermon, the Supreme One performed a special act of creation in the beginning. The heavens and the earth is a mirrorism for everything or the entire universe. So this verse states that in the beginning, God created everything. The best way to understand this verse is a summary statement for the creative activity that follows. Verse 2 describes the setting of creation, the state of the universe just before God began the specific creative acts that follow. Verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Some see in this verse the remnants of a prior judgment, either on Satan and his demons or on a prior civilization. Others see a chaotic universe out of which God begins to create order. But variations of the phrase, without form and void, appear elsewhere in Scripture for desolate and uninhabitable land. The simplest explanation is that the land was uninhabitable because it was underwater. While water and the ocean waves are often used as symbols of chaos and confusion, the later creation account suggests that God first created a ball of water, and thus probably gravity, before the account that follows, possibly at the very beginning of what the text calls day one of creation. Whatever the process God used, one thing we know, matter is not eternal, only God is. There's a real sense of anticipation in this verse. While the word for spirit is the same for wind, the context indicates that the spirit of God is hovering in anticipation of creation. Now that the scene is set, we begin the days of creation. While it's true that in Hebrew, as in English, that the word day, or yom, can mean both a 24-hour period or a general time period, I will interpret these days as six literal 24-hour periods because I see nothing in the text of Scripture or in the evidence of science that makes me think that this is not the most straightforward way to interpret the passage. However, great men of God throughout church history have not always interpreted it this way, including some of the greatest champions of inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. In the days of, of creation, we see a pattern. In the first three days, God creates the spaces and environments that he will then fill on the next three days, days four through, five, uh, four through six. On day one, he creates day and night. And on day four, he creates lights in the sky for day and for night. On day two, he creates the sky. And on day five, he fills the sky with flying creatures and the seas with sea, sea creatures. On day three, he creates dry land. And on day six, He fills it 
with animals and humans. And the seventh day is set apart, separate from the first six. Let's begin with day one. In verses three and four we read, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. First of all, let's appreciate how little effort God is exerting here. Pagan creation myths recount enormous effort and involve great cosmic conflicts to bring about creation. According to the Bible, Almighty God, by himself, creates the universe by the power of his words, his spoken commands. God speaks, and light comes into existence. This is the start of a pattern or formula that we will see with some variations throughout the five days that follow. Notice the action verbs. God said, God saw, God separated, and God called. We will see these words again and again. Light is one of those elementary natural phenomenon of the universe that we take for granted because we can't imagine a universe without it. According to the Bible, light in all its many facets and functions was spoken into existence by God. God also creates a separation between light and darkness, naming the period of light as day and the period of darkness as night. By naming, he shows his authority over the thing named. The formula of evening and morning underscores the end of the first day. Now for day two. Notice verses six through eight. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. The word expanse here is probably better translated, as the King James Version does, firmament, because it has the idea of something solid, like a dome. This is not to say that the Bible teaches that the sky is literally a dome or that the earth is flat. It does not teach that. This is imagery, figurative language, describing how the sky appears from a human perspective. Sort of like how we talk about how the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, even though we know that we're really moving toward and away the sun on the earth's surface as it revolves on its axis. The creation account makes the most sense when you realize that it is narrated from the perspective of a human being standing on the earth's surface. The best way to think about sky or expanse or firmament is what we see when we look up. In the day, we see what looks like a dome of blue with drapery of clouds. And at night, we see a black velvet curtain bejeweled with stars. Once again, God is making a separation or a division. This one results in the atmosphere and possibly outer space. The waters above and the waters below the sky can seem puzzling, but again, remembering that the narrator is speaking from a human perspective, the simplest interpretation is that the waters above are clouds and that the waters below are the seas. Although some have, seen, uh, have speculated that the waters above is an ancient canopy of water vapor before the flood. And now, day three. Day three has actually two creative acts. Let's begin in verse nine. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, 
and God saw that it was good. Once again, we, see, we have God speaking, separating, and pronouncing good. This time, God makes a separation between dry land and the waters, an imagery very similar to the end of the flood account with land rising as water recedes. As in English, the Hebrew word for earth, aretz, can mean both the planet, land, a territory of the land, or soil. The context determines which is meant. Now notice the second creative act on day three, beginning in verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. These are broad categories for different kinds of plants and not our modern scientific categories. Here at the end of the third day, we see the realms of sky, sea, and land furnished with light and vegetation, ready to be filled with appropriate bodies, whether heavenly or earthly bodies. On day four, God fills the sky with light-emitting and light-reflecting objects. Let's start with verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. The terms greater light and lesser light are examples of eloquence through the use of simple words. But there's probably another reason that the narrator chose not to use the Hebrew words for sun and moon here. The word choice reflects the fact that these creation accounts are a polemic, a criticism against pagan accounts of creation. In most pagan religions, especially at the time of Moses, the sun and moon were worshipped as gods in and of themselves. Moses here seems to be artfully reminding his audience that the sun, the moon, and the stars, as impressive as they are, are merely objects created by the one true God. Now, some are troubled by the fact that light is created on day one, while the sun, moon, and stars aren't created until day four. But is it really a problem for Almighty God, who dwells in light, to create light before he creates the objects that emit the light? I don't think so. And I think, not only is God the master artist and engineer, but he's also the master showman. He could create light already on its way to earth from the farthest reaches of the universe so that the wonders of outer space are visible from earth at just the right moment for dramatic effect. And then instantly update that light at the fall so that sinful man could see the effects of his sin in real time. Now others have speculated about how the theory of relativity might affect the speed of light at different times and at different places in the universe, but I think my theory is the simplest. Note that the account of day four rules out any form of astrology. The sun, moon, and the stars have no control over our futures, but the sovereign God who made them does. Also notice that God had both a practical and a theological purpose for creating these lights in the sky. 
God has a practical purpose in helping humans tell time. Years, seasons, months, and days can all be measured by the movements of these lights. They would be especially useful for the, uh, the original audience, uh, the nation of Israel, in remembering the God-given holidays and festivals which regularly reminded them of God's power and his goodness to them as a people. God also has a theological purpose in filling the sky with heavenly bodies. Psalm 19, one through two says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. The sky and the beautiful objects we see in the sky are eloquent witnesses to the power and glory of God. How appropriate to see in the beautiful sunset the brush of a master artist. How fitting when we see billions and billions of galaxies through the Webb and Hubble space telescopes to pause and consider the awesome power of God. Now on to day five. In day five, God will fill the seas and the newly formed and furnished land. Verse 20. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the sea, the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. In Hebrew, it says, let the sea swarm with swarmers and let flyers fly in the sky. God fills the sea, seas with creatures small and great, and he creates flying creatures to fly through the sky. Great sea creatures often appear in pagan mythology as gods or terrible forces that do battle with the gods. But according to scripture, the great sea creatures that do exist are mere guppies in God's great fishbowl. Those of you avid bird watchers, like my grandma back home in Indiana, and those of you who enjoy fishing are especially grateful for day five. And now, day six. This day, like its parallel day, day three, has two creative acts. Verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. The text uses a number of general terms for land animals, domesticated animals, wild animals, living creatures generally, and things that creep on the ground. God created great biological diversity, a host of unique creatures adapted to various ecosystems. If you've ever become engrossed with a nature program or marveled at animals in a zoo, you've been admiring the handiwork of God. And now, the second creative act on day six. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Human beings are different. We are special both male and female. We have inherent value and we have special responsibilities. 
We will talk more about what it means to be created in the image of God later. Now God blesses them, provides for them, and gives them certain responsibilities. Verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Now that human beings have been created, blessed, and given responsibilities, God declares that his creation is not just good, but very good. Now, is there an application here for environmental stewardship? Sure. Clearly, God calls humanity to exercise authority and stewardship over the environment. However, we should be cautious when using the Bible to support a particular policy. The world we inhabit requires trade-offs. We will always be confronted with a difficult cost-benefit analysis in any question of balancing human flourishing with environmental stewardship. The Bible cautions us against both indifference, ignoring the environment, and idolatry, valuing the creation more than the creator or more than those created in God's image, human beings. And now, the final day, day seven. Yet another subtle reminder that chapter divisions are not inspired. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Here God deliberately ceases his creative work. Notice the verbs, finished, rested, blessed, made holy, or sanctified, or set apart. Most human measurements of time are derived from the movements of the earth and other heavenly bodies, but the seven-day week is not. That goes back to the beginning. There is scientific and historical evidence that for whatever reason, the seven-day week is the optimal week. Perhaps that was no accident. Of course, the original, for the original audience of Genesis, the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness, this would be the basis for the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. The Jewish week and Sabbath are grounded in the creation week. See Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. We all know that there are practical health reasons to observe some form of regular rest. Work-rest cycles are important to prevent exhaustion and for optimum productivity. Jesus slept and took breaks. And the Psalms encourage us to glorify the unsleeping God by realizing that God is at work even when we are asleep. We also know from the book of Hebrews that all Sabbaths point to a greater Sabbath rest. This rest is available to the people of God now and in eternity thanks to the atoning work of Christ on the cross. This is how Jesus can say in Matthew 11, 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3, was the pan shot of our creation movie. Now, 
We're ready for our close-up, Mr. DeMille. The close-up. The close-up is a much more intimate shot. In this close-up, we see God's covenant name for the first time in the Bible. This creation account only focuses on certain aspects of creation. It's more topical rather than strictly chronological. The passage begins with a heading. Let's read the first half of verse four. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. The Hebrew word here translated generations is toledot. This is the toledot of the heavens and the earth. In our last sermon, we learned that there were 10 toledots in the book of Genesis. The ESV translates them as generations, the NIV as accounts, and the CSB as records. I think a good way to interpret them is this is the history that begins with fill in the blank. One commentator summarized the Toledot that begins here in verse four as, what became of the universe God made? The Toledot tells the story of how a very good creation was ruined by the sin of mankind. Well, we'll only look at the creation account portion of this Toledot today. The main purpose of this second creation account is to show just how good things were for man before he sinned. Now let's pick up where we left off in verse four and read how God intimately formed humanity. Verse 4b, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The best way to understand the setting of this account is that vegetation, that the vegetation that God had made had not yet spread to its fullest extent. The word mist here could also be translated as spring, as in water springing up from the ground. The point seems to be that there was something lacking. There was no rain to water the ground, and there is no man to work the ground. Notice how unique this creation account is. God molds the man from a humble substance, dirt, and fashions him into a living, breathing life. And he breathes both physical and spiritual life into him. Verse eight, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God puts the man into a beautiful place full of trees. Two trees in particular are singled out. The first tree is the tree of life, and the second tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now the narrator pauses his story to give us a quick geography lesson. Verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. We don't know exactly where Eden was but there's a good chance that it was somewhere east of what is now Egypt and Israel in Mesopotamia. The point is that the garden was well-watered and rich. It had everything man could desire and more. The gold and the stones are reminiscent of the tabernacle and the temple. 
which suggests that mankind had a priestly role in addition to being a gardener, serving and worshiping God intimately in God's very presence. After the geography lesson, the narrator continues with his story of the man being put into the garden. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God gives the man one command. Man is forbidden to eat from the second tree. The punishment for the crime is a death sentence. Not instant death, but eventual death. There is some textual indication that the tree of life either imparted eternal life or sustained eternal life. At the very least, it symbolized eternal life in the presence of God, as it does in the new earth in Revelation chapter 22. Whether or not the tree of knowledge knowledge imparted a special kind of knowledge that God did not yet want, want man to have, we know that eating the tree would cause man to know evil experientially through disobedience. So God has placed the man in an ideal setting, assigning him meaningful responsibilities and given him one command to obey. But something is still lacking for humanity. There is something that is still not good in all of God's very good creation. Verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Here God parades the animals before Adam, both to establish Adam's authority over them and to illustrate that none of them is a fitting life partner for Adam. Note also that helper is not a demeaning term. God himself is often spoken of as a helper for man. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. When Adam awakens and sees Eve, he instantly busts out a love sonnet. Women can have that effect on us sometimes. His words emphasize that she is his equal in substance and in worth, even though Paul clearly explains that the creation order has implications for leadership roles in the home and in the church. Finally, Verses 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Marriage is to be a close relationship superior to all other human loyalties. The husband and wife are to pursue oneness, both physically and emotionally, especially in their mutual worship of God. And while it's rightly hard for us to comprehend nakedness without shame today, the point of that last verse is to highlight the contrast between humans before the fall and after the fall. The innocence that we see here at the end of chapter 2 will be tragically lost in chapter 3. 
There you have it. Our creation movie made use of two shots, two camera angles to tell both a sweeping and an intimate story about God creating the universe and God creating human beings. But what about the climax of our movie? The climax. Did you notice the climax of both accounts? The Imago Dei, that's Latin for the image of God. The creation of man in the image of God is the climactic moment in both camera shots of our creation movie. There are many aspects of what it means for human beings to be created in the image of God. From our creativity, to our sense of morality, to our ability to communicate and experience community. Even the fact that we stand erect and walk upright. These are all no doubt ways that we image God. Many of the verbs we see God doing in this passage can be done by humans only to a lesser ex- uh, extent. Speaking, creating, naming, evaluating. The bottom line is that we as humans are, in important and unique ways, like God. However, it is important to understand that while we are like God, God is not like us. All kinds of confusion happen when we seek to judge God in human terms. We are like God, but God is not like us. We were made to have an intimate relationship with our Creator. God gave us the responsibilities to rule his creation on his behalf and to be his representatives on earth. As we will see in chapter three, we failed miserably in our duties as image bearers. While we still bear God's image, there is still a craving in the human heart for goodness and for God. We have fallen and our natures are fallen. We are in desperate need to have that image restored fully. Fortunately, there is one of whom the Apostle Paul said, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. Jesus Christ perfectly bears the image of God the Father and only he can restore the image of God in sinful man. Well, we've seen the creation story from the pan shot to the close up and then the climax. Now let's take away five applications from this text. Application number one, praise God for what we learn about him in this passage. Praise God for what we learn about him in this passage. What do we learn about God in this passage? By the way, if you're just starting to study the Bible on your own, that is a great first question to ask of any passage of scripture. But what do Genesis 1 and 2 teach us about God? His power. He can speak the wonders of the universe into existence. His goodness. He made all things good, and he shows his goodness in the things he made. His provision. He provides bountifully for his creation, especially for those created in his image. His grace. He shows undeserved kindness to those who have done nothing to earn that kindness. His eternality. Before the beginning, before the heavens and the earth, there was God. He has always been and he will always be. His wisdom. Only an all-wise God could design and build the universe that we see. I'm sure we could think of many other attributes of God and aspects of his character found in these passages. Since we don't have adventure clubs tonight, and since tomorrow is a holiday, perhaps you could spend some time this afternoon reading these chapters yourself or with your family and make an even longer list. That would be a wonderful way to spend some extra time and to fuel a heart of worship.
Application number two, human life is precious. Human life is precious. Because human beings are created in the image of God, human life is precious. This should affect how we view the unborn, how we care for the aged and disabled, and how we seek to show kindness and respect to all, even to the difficult and unlikable. It also speaks to the equal worth and dignity of both genders and of all races. This should affect how we think about abortion and how we vote. Human life is precious, so we dare not treat it as expendable or inconvenient. Application number three, God is both powerful and personal. God is both powerful and personal. In chapter one, the word for God is Elohim, which means the supreme one and reflects his status as the ultimate God of the universe. In chapter two, we see the Bible's first mention of God's covenant name, Yahweh Elohim, here translated as Lord God. The great I am who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush and who made covenants with Abraham and his descendants. We often fall into two extremes when we think or speak about God. Either we see God as distant and unknowable or we refer to him casually and assume we're on good terms with him. God is the holy and powerful creator of all the universe and he desires a relationship with his special though fallen image bearers. Only through Jesus Christ can sinful creatures have a restored relationship with their creator. Application number four, God made the world, so God makes the rules. God made the world, so God makes the rules. God made the universe well, and he knew what he was doing. God knows what is best for his creation, and he has every right to make the rules according to his perfect character. Though it's unpopular to consider in our postmodern society today, God made gender, God made marriage, God made our bodies, and God has the right to tell us what we can and cannot do with them. We should show love and compassion and respect to all, including those who sin or struggle in these areas, but we must graciously stand for the truth that God has revealed. God made the world, so God makes the rules. But as we will see in our next sermon in Genesis, we human beings have a real problem with rules. The first man broke the first rule, and we've had an addiction to disobeying rules ever since. The Bible says all of us have fallen short of God's commands, God's rules. Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. And Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all broken the rules. None of us have kept them fully or perfectly, yet that is exactly what God requires. His perfect holiness demands nothing less, and his perfect justice requires that he punish all evil. So is there any hope for anyone? Yes, because of our next application. Application number five, God is still in the light-making business. God is still in the light-making business. There is nothing inherently evil about physical darkness. God separated it from the light and called it night, and he uses it for his purposes, displaying his glory in outer space and providing sleep to his beloved. But the Bible and all of human literature uses darkness as a powerful symbol for ignorance of the truth and for evil itself. 
Because of the disobedience of mankind, the whole human race was plunged into spiritual darkness. Both a natural ignorance of the things of God and a bent nature that craves and practices evil. Who can deliver us from this darkness? How can we see the light? There is one who never sinned, who only always walked in the light. He is the one who came to earth and fulfilled many prophecies, one of which says, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Apostle Paul, who had his own powerful transformation from darkness to light, said, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Only God can create light out of darkness. Only God can produce spiritual light out of spiritual darkness. Jesus Christ died on the cross as a sinless substitute for all those who would turn from their sins and believe in him. If you have questions today about how you can have light in a dark world, Would you please talk to one of us today? We would love to show you from the Bible how you can have your sins forgiven and experience the light of God. It really is quite simple. Admit your darkness, your sin. Ask for forgiveness from this holy God and rely wholly and solely on Christ's sacrificial death on the cross for sinners like you, for sinners like us. Look to Christ and have light. Look to Christ and have life. Jesus is calling you today. He is saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's stand and pray. Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, Thank you that we can have the light of Christ through the light of the gospel. I pray that each and every one under the sound of my voice would turn from darkness to the light, would through the sacrificial blood of Christ be translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of your dear son, Jesus Christ. May each of us walk in the light so that we might bring glory to him who dwells in light, who wraps himself with light as with a garment, both now and for all time, and for all eternity. In the name of Christ, the great light giver, we pray. Amen.